Good morning, everyone. You're listening to The Sci-Files, an exposure segment featuring Michigan State University student research. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Good morning, everyone, and you're listening to Sci-Files. I'm over here at Impact 89 FM, and we are a part of the exposure series. My name is Chelsea Boudou, and I'm your co-host. And my name is Daniel Puentes, your other co-host. And we're here interviewing Kate. Kate, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Sure. My name is Kate Wieringa. I am a graduate student at Michigan State. I'm getting my PhD, and I'm in my third year. I am in the biochemistry and molecular biology department, and I'm actually working in a food science lab in the lab of Dr. Jim Pesca. That's awesome. What research do you do? Well, our lab is interested in, we study autoimmunity, and we're interested in the environmental uh, factors that can promote autoimmune disease. And we also are interested in how different dietary interventions or changing things you eat can block the development of autoimmune disease. Could you describe what an autoimmune disease is from the first place? Yeah, yeah, of course. So all of us have an immune system, and our immune system is really important in protecting our body against any sort of foreign invader, basically. So like if if, uh, bacteria gets in your body that isn't supposed to be there, your immune system recognizes it as something foreign, foreign, and it's able to get rid of it, basically. But sometimes some people have different problems with their immune system where their immune system actually recognizes their own body as the foreign invader. And so then their immune system starts to attack the person's own body. So sometimes this is just the immune system attacking a certain type of cell. And other times it's just the host in general. The immune system will try to attack the the person. How do autoimmune system diseases relate to your research then? Yeah, so our lab is interested in a specific autoimmune disease called lupus. Um, And lupus lupus has been shown to be promoted by different environmental factors. So what our lab studies specifically is a substance called crystalline silica. And it's basically just little teeny tiny particles of dust um, that get kicked up in the air anytime rock or sand is being processed. So like if you're walking past like a construction site and someone is like sawing through a cement block... That like fluffy white powder that gets kicked up into the air is contains crystalline silica. And that's really, really tiny. And so when you inhale it, it can get deposited into your lungs and it can cause a bunch of inflammation. And this can then promote the development of autoimmune diseases. So people have shown that this has been potentially a factor that promotes the development of lupus, which is what our lab studies. So we're investigating what the mechanisms are that link exposure to this substance, silica, to the development of autoimmune disease. This reminds me a lot of those different asbestos commercials. Yeah, very, very similar. Exactly what Mm -hmm. I was thinking. Yep. Uh, Where's the relation there? Well, asbestos is more like a fiber, but it's very similar in that it's really tiny and it can get deposited in your lungs. And when your immune cells come in contact with it, they get overactivated because uh, they realize it's bad and they need to get rid of it. And so it's very very similar. I, I don't know... 100% whether asbestos exposure has been linked to autoimmune disease, um, but it certainly has been linked to increased inflammation. Mm -hmm. Are you saying that lupus is caused a lot by inflammation with the silica particles? Are there any other factors that contribute to it? Yeah, so lupus is primarily, I mean, it's a genetic disease. So you can be genetically predisposed to it if you have 
specific genes, you're going to be more likely to develop the disease. But silica can be more like a trigger. So just because you accidentally breathe in a bunch of silica, you're not going to all of a sudden get lupus. But if you're an individual who is genetically predisposed to it, like you're more likely to get it than if you are in a situation where you're in like really high exposure or high contact with silica, you could the silica could potentially trigger the development of the disease. So it's more of a trigger, whereas the genetics are already there to like make you more likely to get the disease, the lupus kind of could push it over the, or sorry, the silica could kind of push the development over the edge, if that makes sense. So what have you figured out so far? (laughs) Well, our lab, we use a mouse model that is uh, genetically predisposed to get lupus, just like certain individuals are. And so this mouse, it will develop lupus-like symptoms at around I mean, this is probably too much detail. This mouse will eventually develop lupus-like symptoms as it gets older. But when we expose these mice to silica, they develop lupus much earlier. So this kind of mimics like a person who maybe at some point in their life, they might develop lupus. But if they're exposed to some sort of environmental factor that promotes it, they might see the development happen earlier in their life. How do you dispose them to the silica? Like, do you put it in the air of their cages or do you inject it or something into them? So we actually just take we take the silica and we suspend it in in a solution. So it's it's mixed up in like a liquid solution and then we just take a tiny drop of it and put it right at the base of their nose and we have them anesthetized so they're like asleep basically. And when you put a little tiny drop right on their nose, they just breathe it in and it goes right down into their airways just like if they had breathed it in in the air. And do you know how much they're inhaling? Yeah, so we always give them a, a um consistent dose. So they always get the same amount and we know how much they're getting. But we've chosen the dose they get to mimic what someone would uh, see over the course of a lifetime. So it's a human relevant dose. It's about the same. If you like make it smaller and put it down into mouse terms, it's about the same as what a person would be exposed to over the course of their whole life. In just one drop? We actually do four different drops. So we do four drops, so a week apart. So it's like four separate exposures and then all of that combined combined is, I guess I should specify, it's more what someone who is in a job, in an occupation where they would be exposed to that. So not just one of us, but like if you are a construction worker or a miner, it's supposed to mimic what they would be exposed to. So this has direct implications to how construction sites are managed then and yeah. how mm-hmm. different construction sites are closed down or when buildings need to be demolished. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, exactly. And there are there are limitations and regulations in place. So OSHA is the the company that's or not company, but they're like the agency that's responsible for putting regulations in place and they have a limit of how much silica dust can be in the air and when people need to be wearing masks to protect themselves, things like that. So there are limits out there, which is good. And do you agree with those limits? Do you think that they need to be refined more? They actually I think it was it was maybe in 2016. It was in the past few years they they made it even stricter, which I think was good. So, I believe that the what we're exposing the mice to is would be within the old regulations, and but now I think it would be higher than the new regulations. But there are newer regulations, and I think that they are better than the old ones. They're actually much stricter than the old ones were. I'm wondering, is there any sort of test that people can take whenever they're born that can tell them if they're genetically predisposed to being able to contract lupus from the silica in the air? Yeah, well, lupus is, because it's a genetic disease, hereditary. So if if someone knew that they have an aunt or maybe they're, oh, it's also more likely in 
females. So it's much more common in females than in males. So so say you have a, a baby girl and her her aunt or maybe her mom or a few other female family members have lupus, they're pretty likely to be more likely to develop the disease themselves. There's a few specific genes that have been identified that are associated with the development of lupus, but it hasn't been like 100% figured out yet that you could just look at one thing and know for sure someone was going to get lupus. It kind of has to be a, a handful of different things happening. But for sure, if they have family members that have lupus, they're more likely to get the disease themselves. So why are women more predisposed to contracting lupus in their lifetime? Yeah, so that's another thing that people are working on uh, figuring out. It's not 100% known why. So females are about 10 times more likely than males to develop lupus. And it's usually, people usually develop lupus during like childbearing years. So you wouldn't see like a young, often you don't see like a young girl developing lupus or like someone that's much, much older developing it late in their life. It's usually right around like your childbearing years. So people believe a lot of it is probably linked to different hormonal things, more exposure to estrogen, things like that. But it's not 100% figured out. basically. And can you remind our listeners what lupus actually is? Yeah. So lupus is an autoimmune disease. It's uh, So again, autoimmune disease is where your own immune system actually begins attacking you, the host, And so lupus specifically, people that have lupus, they often, sometimes it will present as like a rash on their skin. It's characterized generally by quite a bit of inflammation. And so this can present as like chronic pain, chronic fatigue. Ultimately, if if lupus is left untreated, the kidneys, a lot of the inflammation and I guess symptoms occur in the kidneys. So if left untreated, ultimately the kidneys will fail. Luckily, there are lots of treatments for lupus, but there isn't a cure. So lots of people that have lupus are able to manage it, but they still have to live with the the fatigue, chronic pain, joint pain, that kind of thing. And there's just a lot of complications. I remember you were saying that you guys modeled this through a mouse model Mm -hmm. where you put drops of silica by the mice by where they're inhaling so they can inhale it as if humans do. And I'm wondering, do you only look at the lupus symptoms or what else do you see that are going on in these mice that might, mice that might be notable? Yeah. So, so again, our lab isn't, we're interested in understanding how those environmental factors like silica are promoting the disease. So we look at a lot of the early stages of inflammation that we see following silica exposure um, and then try to link those early inflammatory effects to the downstream lupus response. So... When we look in the lungs of the mice, we can see after they're exposed to silica, they have lots and lots of additional new inflammation in their lungs. And we think that this is then driving the downstream more systemic effects that you see in the whole body are really starting in the lungs after the mice breathe in the silica. Another thing that we look at is how dietary interventions can then be used to block this environmental trigger of lupus. And so those same mice that get exposed to the silica are on diets that are really rich in um, omega-3 fatty acids, which is the main fatty acid in fish oil, so in like salmon, oily fish. Um, And we found that this really decreases the inflammation that we see in the mice and then also decreases the development of lupus. What are you guys seeing other than the lungs with inflammation? Because I know that I've heard, well, that inflammation can really affect a lot of organs, especially mm-hmm. like the heart. For example, if your heart is inflamed, you can end up with atherosclerosis and other stuff. Like, mm-hmm. 
Do you guys look at the other organs in the body or only particularly with the lungs? Well, we focus on the lungs because that's kind of the, the early stages of inflammation. But we also look at other organs too. So because lupus really does primarily affect the kidneys, if left untreated, we look at the kidneys and then we look for the development of inflammation there. We also look at the liver. We haven't done very much with the heart, but we focus, we focus more on liver, spleen, kidney, and then of course the lungs. Thank you so much, Kay, for giving us that insight about your research and what your involvement is. Now, let's try to get a more comprehensive understanding of who you are. Why did you join this lab and what motivated you to perform this type of research? Yeah, so I started grad, when I started grad school, I wanted to be involved on a project that had some sort of connection to human, human health, human health and disease. And so when I, when I came across this lab, I really liked the interplay between both understanding how environmental factors influence disease and then also how there's actually things that we can do, like different lifestyle changes, dietary interventions to actually basically block the development of environmentally triggered disease. So I've always been really interested in nutrition, and so the idea of really investigating how a dietary intervention can impact things was exciting to me, and that's pretty much it. I just really, I really like trying to dig apart the mechanisms of, we have like a big, a big picture idea of understanding how a certain factor can impact downstream effect, but I like trying to pick apart the little steps along the way and understanding what's happening there. What was your motivation to get into science? Like, did you always know that you wanted to look at diseases and human health? Not necessarily. For a while, I wanted to go to medical school when I was an undergrad. And I primarily wanted to go to medical school because I was interested in, you know, health and how the body functions and how all those little parts work together. And then when I was a junior in college, I did about a, I did a research internship and I did about a year working in a chemistry lab and I really enjoyed the research side of it. It wasn't super translate like directly translational to human research or to human health, but I just enjoyed the process of having a problem and trying to figure out what's the best way to approach this problem and then once you get some data back, figure out how that fits into your original hypothesis, all of that. So I figured out then that I liked research and so I knew I wanted to go to grad school to really use research to try to answer some of the, the questions that I was really interested in. So we talked about what got you into science. Mm-hmm. What are your plans for once you're finished with your doctoral degree? Oh, that's the million dollar question. I really have no, I have a few different ideas. So there's a lot of, when I originally came in, I, I wanted to teach. So I just wanted, I went to a small liberal arts college and I really liked just the very close knit feel of it. So I, I've always loved working with students. Like I've TA'd, I TA'd some in undergrad and I've TA'd some in grad school. And I really like teaching and working with students. So I definitely think that wherever my future career goes, there will be some aspect of teaching involved in it. But I am interested in potentially pursuing more of a research intensive position rather than strictly teaching. So, but I think whatever happens, I probably will remain in academia. I really like the academic realm. I was wondering, though, I want to know more about you, like more than just a scientist. Like, what do you do for fun? Oh, let's see. So when I'm not in the lab, 
I like to go running. So my husband runs too. So one thing that we'll do for fun is sign up for a race in a cool new place and then kind of make a weekend out of it and see somewhere new and also, you know, accomplish a new goal of running a new race. So, yeah. What average distance do you run? So I run a couple, I've run a couple marathons, which is, it's really hard to train for in grad school, but it was, those were like some bucket list items, but I really probably my preference would be the half marathon because that's a little bit more manageable. It's just enough running to keep me sane in graduate school without like tipping me over the edge of having to run all the time. And out of all the different races that you've ran, what was your favorite race location? Oh, man, that's hard. I've got, there's been a lot that I really liked. Probably my my favorite one would be I ran a half marathon in Marquette, Michigan um, in August, which is a wonderful time to be up in Marquette. And so that was super fun. Well, hopefully you didn't catch any uh, silica in while you were running and inhaling. Right, by the that. mining and stuff up there? Yeah, no, I think we were okay. I ate a lot of fish oil to counteract it. Oh, perfect. <laughs> yes. You just mentioned that you consumed fish oil for your health and whatnot. I was wondering, could you go more into how fish oil works with your research? Yeah, yeah, of course. So, so with that lupus mouse model that I was talking about earlier, a really interesting thing that we found is that If the animals are fed diets that are rich in fish oil, then that actually blocks the silica-triggered development of autoimmune disease. So again, I'll just go back to the animal model. These animals, they will eventually develop autoimmune disease on their own, but when they're exposed to silica, it happens a lot earlier in their life. However, if the animals are on diets that are rich in um, fish oil, then the development of lupus is actually pushed back to about what we would see in the animals that weren't exposed to any silica to begin with. So DHA is basically blocking whatever silica is doing to trigger development of the disease. You mentioned DHA. What is that? Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. So DHA is a a fatty acid, um, and it's a major component of fish oil. So often I'll use fish oil and DHA interchangeably, which is not exactly correct, but DHA makes up a big part of fish oil. So it's one of the main oils in fish oil. Mm -hmm. So from what I'm understanding then is that if a person was working at a construction site and was exposed to these different silica particles, they could take fish oil to help counteract the negative effects that the silica would have had on their body to prevent lupus from occurring earlier. Yes, exactly. That's really what we're trying to understand is we've shown in these animals that fish oil can potentially block the bad effects that we see with silica. And so now we're really trying to unravel what exactly is it about the fish oil that is doing that. So there's a a handful of studies that have shown that fish oil is anti-inflammatory. And so they've used it in other inflammatory and autoimmune diseases to improve disease condition. And so we're just trying to do that in lupus and in this exposure-triggered model for lupus. Is it the vitamins or something in the fish oil? Like, do you guys know what exactly does that? Because I know that not only fish oil is anti-inflammatory, like turmeric is as well. Like, why did you guys particularly pick fish oil? Yeah, so fish oil, I mentioned DHA earlier, and that's one of the main fatty acids in fish oil. Um, DHA is an omega-3 fatty acid, and The omega-3 fatty acids specifically are what we're um, investigating. So the omega-3 fatty acids have been shown to be 
anti-inflammatory and help to block some of those inflammatory diseases. Is there a particular type of fish oil that you guys look at? I know that there's krill oil and certain things like that. Is there a specific fish that you guys think is better than others? Yeah, so we actually use purified DHA. So we, instead of using like the word for it is crude fish oil, which would just be the whole, all of the fish oil, we purify it. We have it purified down to DHA. So we're really just specifically looking at the omega-3 fatty acids instead of the other things in the fish oil. But really any, any I guess, mixture of fish oil that has a lot of EPA, which is another omega-3 fatty acid, and DHA is would be the best. From what I'm gathering, you're saying that fish oil would help prevent this. And you're saying that the silica is consumed in construction sites. So why can't people just wear dust masks or something like that? Is there other ways that people can consume the silica other than at these construction sites? Yeah, so a lot of people do wear the masks. But, I mean, sometimes you're exposed to things not maybe you're just you know walking past or if you live in a very industrial area where there's a lot of construction going on you don't necessarily have to be the one you know right there but this stuff it's really small and fine and it can get picked up and blown you know downwind to someone not on the construction site so depending on where a person lives or maybe they're kind of you know accidentally exposed to it you can't always prevent it how much DHA do you provide with your mice to, before you start to see a significant effect in whether or not they contract lupus or not? The mice are all given the same dose of silica. And then, again, that that is about relatable to what someone would be exposed to over a lifetime of working, like a construction-type job. And then all the mice, the mice are given two different doses of DHA. So... We either give them um, enough that would be equivalent to about 2 grams per day for a human or equivalent to about 5 grams per day for a human. So we have our low dose, which is 2, and our high dose is 5. And the 2 grams per day, you could conceivably obtain that much if you took fish oil supplementation. So you can buy fish oil pills from like Costco or Meyer, really anywhere. And if you take, I think it's about 2 or 3 times like, what they say is a dose, that would be about two grams. So it's a little bit more than what most people are probably actually taking, even if they take fish oil supplements, but it is attainable or achievable if you really go for it. (laughs) And we do see some good effects at the two gram per day dose, so our low dose. The five gram per day dose is where we see things are almost completely blocked as far as development of the disease goes. But even at the two gram per day dose, the mice have much less severe disease than the ones that don't get any DHA at all. I'm curious, are there any other things that people should be worried about, about how they can contract lupus other than from genetic predisposition or from the silica in the air? Yeah, there's a variety of different potential exposures that have been linked to the development of lupus. I I can't, I don't necessarily know them all off the top of my head, but there are different things that people can be exposed to that can promote it. So so if a person is genetically predisposed to it and they know like their mom has lupus or their grandma or their aunt, then I think it would be probably a good idea to at least be aware of what type of things could promote development of the disease. Does being genetically predisposed to lupus make you predisposed to other things? Yeah, actually, a lot of times people that have lupus have other autoimmune diseases in addition to lupus. I don't 
uh, know the exact number off the top of my head, but it's not uncommon for someone to have lupus as well as another autoimmune disease. And a lot of this is because kind of the, I guess, basis behind these autoimmune diseases is just kind of a greater propensity towards increased inflammation. And just if if your immune system is already a little confused as to what's the host versus what's a foreign invader, it would kind of make sense that you could have multiple autoimmune diseases going on at one time. Thank you so much, Kate, for sitting down to talk with both Chelsea and I about your incredible research. Now, is there any last lasting advice that you would give to any of our listeners that might be interested in science but are not sure whether or not they want to go ahead and study it? Yeah, I think if you... I think if you're interested, you should at least try it. That's one thing that I wish I had done more as certainly as an undergraduate is I wish I had earlier on in my career at least tried out some sort of research position. So I kind of had my mind set on one thing and I thought, oh, I'm not going to want to do research. And then when I did have a little bit of experience with research, I loved it. And so I think if that had been something I'd been exposed to younger, I would have known much earlier on that I wanted to end up doing research. So I would say just put yourself in a position where you can actually have a chance to try something, try something new and you might actually really like it. Thanks a lot for sharing your research with us, Kate. Catch us next time here at Sci-Files on Impact 89 FM. Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on Sci-Files.